Super Bowl Sunday, right? Good morning to you. Stand if you think the Steelers are going to win. Ah, ah that, that takes some courage here in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm assuming the rest will either be cheering for or think that the Packers will win. Yes, well, as you know, this is a unofficial national holiday in our country, and I want to play off of it a little bit with the message that I want to bring today. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about the Super Bowl in our culture as big as sports is, as if that is a difference-making moment in the lives of not only fans, players, owners, but cities tied to football. That people's defining moments can be attached to something like a Super Bowl. But I really wonder. I wonder. In fact, there's a guy that won three Super Bowls. And I want to show a clip on how he wonders, too. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and and still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is, me, I thank God. It's gotta be more than this. I wish I knew, I wish I knew. I love playing football and I love being the quarterback for this team. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Tom Brady, he's won three Super Bowls. But did you catch some of his words? There's something greater out there for me. God, it's got to be more than this. I wish I knew the answer. I appreciate his authenticity and what it brings to the reality that there must be something to a life change difference, a satisfaction, a fulfillment for what our lives are and can mean that goes beyond Super Bowl rings. There's a story of someone that I think gets it or is a little closer to getting it. His name is Johnny. Johnny worked for a grocery store chain. And in his town, a national conference was coming. 3,000 truckers, vendors, grocery line workers would attend this conference for training on how you can make a difference day to day in your job in the grocery chain. A gal named Barbara was the presenter and she told a lot of inspiring stories. She had some neat posters around the room that everybody met in. And then the day ended and she was done. But she said to the crowd before she left, she said, hey, I'll leave my number if anybody here would like to call me later to talk about anything that was presented today, please do so. Well, about a month later, Johnny did. Johnny was a 19-year-old bagger for the grocery chain. And when he called Barbara, he was proud to tell her, I have Down syndrome. And Barbara, I'll tell you, when I listened to your message, it was inspiring. I, I liked the stories. I like the posters, but I thought, I'm just a bagger. How can I really make a difference, be that blessing, to be that, that difference maker in somebody's day that you talked about? 
But then he went on to say, you know, but I've had an idea recently and I want to tell you about it. And Barbara said, well, go ahead and share that, Johnny. He said, well, Barbara, I, I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I have an idea. Would you help me with it? My idea is to have a thought for the day that I could present to customers that come through my line at the grocery store. Dad, I would like, up, like to write up a new thought of the day or inspiring saying or make up something myself. Would you help me copy about six of them on a sheet every day, run 50 copies, and I'll have a stack of 300 right there when I go to work every day? And Johnny's dad said, let's do it. We'll do it. So Johnny was a man that felt like he could make a difference. He took that stack next to him and he put it on the top of the last bag of every customer and he'd look them straight in the eye. And he would say this, I put a great saying in your bag. I hope it helps you have a good day. Thanks for coming to our store today. Johnny felt like he might be making a difference. This morning, we're going to look at what does the scripture say? What does God say about how we can have a difference made in our lives, but also make differences in other people's lives for life change? And it's fun for me because I think it's right in the scripture. We don't have to go to Amazon.com. We don't have to go to Barnes and Nobles and find somebody to tell us how to make that difference. It's right here. It's in the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's where we're going to be this morning. And in this book, Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, speaks to us about life change. Life change in the sense of how you start it how you stimulate it, and how it brings satisfaction. And that will give us our outline for this morning. But before I go to the book of 1 Thessalonians, you need to have some backdrop story. So I'm a Bible storyteller here this morning for a little bit. You see, Paul was a guy that when he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, was called to go and spread that message throughout the land. And so he went on these missionary journeys, and he would travel from town to town. And Thessalonica was a town that he came to during his second missionary journey. And he did what was his custom. He went to the synagogue as a Jewish man, and he was given privilege to preach and teach. And he did this for three successive Sundays, it tells us in the book of Acts, chapter 17, in this town of Thessalonica. And the response of the people was typical to what he often would find. Many people said, wow, that makes sense. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He has come. He resurrected from the grave. And to have faith, belief, and following of him produces an eternal security, a destiny with God forever, starting in this life and into the life to come. Many people responded, Jews, God-fearing Greeks. But you know how it can go in a religious system when you have the power and you are the establishment. There were also people there that were jealous of the response that Paul was getting. And so they routed Paul and his friends out of town. They booted them. They even chased them down at the next town when Paul was doing the same thing and tried to rile a mob to get them out of there. And so the setting for what we're going to read today is that Paul, after being away from these people, not having the chance to 
follow up on their response, their positive response to the message he had shared, he's wondering, how are they doing? The persecution that was coming at me is probably coming at them. How are they doing? And so he decides to send Timothy, his close partner, back to find out what's going on. And Timothy goes back, finds out, and reports to Paul that they're doing well. They're doing really well. God is in their midst. They really attached themselves and embraced the message that you shared. And so now Paul writes a letter back to the people at Thessalonica. That's the book we're reading today. As we see how he describes the start to life change, stimulation to life change, and the satisfaction of life change. Let me read to you. You'll see it on the screen in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He's encouraging these Thessalonians. He's telling them, remember with me that I brought to you the true gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, the one that can do for you what you can't do for yourself to get right with God. And you grabbed it and you held to it. You didn't see it as just a good story. You saw it as the gospel, a life-changing message. He tells them that the Holy Spirit was the one producing this. It wasn't my convincing argument. It wasn't you acquiescing to my pressure techniques. God was there, moved your heart, and you came to him. And he reminds them, too, and he's sharing his amazement that not only did I send Timothy back to find out how you're doing, but what I found out is not only you're doing okay in and of yourself, but you're passing the message on to other cities. You're sounding it forth. I would have never imagined, which was another indicator of a true start of life change, that they were boldly sharing and they were taking on the suffering that was coming from environmental pressures of people that didn't like the change that they saw in these people. So I wonder this morning about your start as you sit here this morning. Do you have a start? Can you look back at a time and say, this is when I embraced the message of the gospel That Jesus is the master. He is the one that can do for me what nobody, not even myself, can do to be right with him. Sin is a dark mark, and I can't erase it in and of myself. My good works, my church attendance, none of that will do it. Only Jesus will. Do you have that faith response in your life? 
Because as I work in ministry and get a chance to work with a lot of people, I find that there are folks that go to church because it's, it's a decent thing to do. Or it makes the spouse happy. Or ah, it's the right kind of thing to pull along your kids because they need to get some training and exposure to faith. So we'll come along. Or maybe it's to stop a bad habit. You need a little fix to get going in the right direction. Or in America, we can live the American dream and throw a little Jesus on top and nobody will know the difference. But I think it's more than that. Do you feel a Holy Spirit movement, conviction in your heart as you work through life? Do you sense his presence there with you? Because that's the indication of a true start and enduring life change. Are you willing to stand up in the midst of embarrassment or even mild suffering for your faith? And not just fall into the crowd and stay away from that portion of your life being exposed when you're in a different environment than sitting right here. The stimulation of life change. I like what Paul goes on to say, and we'll read it here in a moment, but he he presents to them another reminder that his methodology with them in stimulating them to grow and to be difference makers wasn't about a slick presentation. It wasn't about trying to win a popularity contest. Come, come join my group. It wasn't to milk these people for their money. It wasn't manipulation at all. See, he was trying to set them on a course of knowing how their life can be stimulated again and again to be changed and how they can be an instrument of God to stimulate life change in other people. Here's what he said. Verse 7 of chapter 2. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brothers, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and as is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See, my friends, we'll unpack this a little bit here for a few minutes, but to me, that's the ministry methodology or model for the ages. It describes so well the, the processes and the principles And the ultimate purpose for what God has for us in this life. And for spiritual growth. The the purpose is right there in verse 12. So that, that indicates purpose, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's our purpose. Everything leads up to us being able to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls us to his glory and kingdom. In all of life. Not just in the spiritual sections we cut out, not just in a Sunday morning, but in all of life. That's the purpose, young and old. But how? How does he say this can be stimulated or done? 
I think he does a little outline here. He talks about a mother, a model, and a man. Helps me to remember it that way. A mother, a model, and a man. And I saw this illustrated really well in my life as a father of three daughters that all played some soccer. My oldest daughter's in college now, but when she played soccer, she played on a different team every year. She wasn't at an elite level in her soccer competition. And on this one team, on this one particular year, they were good. They didn't get beat. They made it to the postseason tournament. And there was something different about the way that team was operated and coached that really made all the difference in the world. And it ran along this idea that I think I see in this scripture of a mother, a model, and a man. Here's what happened. There wasn't just one coach. There was three coaches. First was a mother, a mother of one of the kids and the wife of the head coach. And you know what her role was? When the little girls would run out there and try to be in the right position and do the right thing with the ball, well, guess what would happen? Sometimes their little hair bows would fall out. And that would upset them. And so they would go looking for that or cry that something had come undone. And guess what that coach would do? She'd put her arm around them and say, it's okay, honey, we'll find your hair bow. And you need a glass of water, come over here. Here, you can have a snack before halftime, even though that's when the snack. She was a mom. She knew how to mother these girls. And they knew they had a nurturing, tender person over on the sideline that was for them, if anything happened. But then there was another coach. She was the model. She was the daughter of the coach, three or four years older than all the girls. And guess what? They looked up to her. She was prettier. She was more talented. She knew what to do with the soccer ball. Instead of the older coach or mom demonstrating, he always used her to demonstrate all the moves, all the positioning, all the techniques. And they paid attention because they admired her. She was pretty. And she was three or four years older, older than them, and she was good. She was a model. But then he had his role, the head coach. He was the man. He was the one that would get into him a little bit, appropriately so. Hey, you're not supposed to be there. What did we do in practice this week? You're supposed to be over here. Hey, you're not paying attention. What's going on? Don't look to your mommy and daddy. Pay attention. The ball's there. He was on him in an appropriate sense. And that combination was a great dynamic to this little soccer team. All three pieces came together in a way that stimulated them to be in the best that they could be. And that's what Paul talks about here. He talks about a mother that is there as a part of his methodology in working with people. To be tender, to care, to be affectionate, to be available, to be responsive. Like many of you moms are, you know it full well. Now, I claim a male disease, okay? But that's a little friendly to myself because, frankly, in a story I want to tell with you, I was an idiot. I-D-I-O-T, idiot. I didn't have this skill, and I still struggle with today as a man of one wife and three daughters. Empathy, tenderness, caring, And in one instance, I was a, bad, a good example of a bad example, if I can put it that way, with my wife. I came home from work, and I was going into my home office, and she is at the station where in this lower level we had our laundry. And I walked by and said, hey, honey, how was your day? And she kind of looked up and um, grumbled a little bit, ah, not that good. 
And I said, well, why is that? And she was in the dryer, and she was right then pulling out a bunch of clothes that had ink stain all over them, kind of seared into this clothes, because yours truly had left an ink pen in his pant pocket, and it had broken, and it had got heated up, and it had marked every piece of clothing in the dryer. Well, here's a chance to be tender and responsive and affectionate, right? Guess what I said? Well, honey, you ought to check my pants pockets before you do the laundry. Guys, don't try that one. That's not a good one. She was tender with me, but she was also smoking a little bit because that wasn't appropriate for the moment. Now, did I intend to hurt her or make her feel bad? No, I didn't, but I was an idiot. In the circumstance, I didn't pay attention to the situation and have a heart, a tender motherly type of heart, if you will, to stimulate a difference-making moment in her life at that time. I blew it up. You see, in that situation, while it's funny a little bit, and I could say, well, I'm a guy, and that's how we are, it's really more about the fact that I sometimes go into the mode of, you do your thing, I'll do mine. I'll take care of myself, you take care of yourself. I have a stiff self-sufficiency and independence to life sometimes, and that's not the way to help people and to make a difference in their life. Does it make me productive and efficient at times? Yeah. But is that the end game? Is that the goal? No, it's not. And so to have a motherly approach is good for both men and women that want to make difference in people's lives. Secondly, the model, the model. Paul talks here about how he not only imparted a gospel message, but he also gave his own life to these people. That's what the scripture said. And I love that because he's characterizing himself as not just this preacher on the stage or the guy that's got the spiritual goods and he kind of delivers them out and doles them out and then he goes back to his private place and does spiritual guru stuff no he says i just i was real with you i was authentic i showed my own warts i got into life with you i worked hard right alongside you i didn't be a burden or try to cash in on my leadership role spiritually I had character. I, I showed responsibility. I, I came prepared. I earned the right to be involved in your life. See, he showed them that they weren't projects. They were people. And sometimes in our attempts to try to affect other people's lives, we can start to turn them into a project instead of a person, which they are. I'll never forget a guy that modeled this for me. As a college student, his name was Bill. See, I grew up in an environment that there wasn't a lot of spiritual life ingredients to the life I lived as a kid growing up. And I'd pretty much put it aside and ditched it. But I'd come to Christ, was growing, and I got attached to a guy that had a wife and family that brought me in not only to teach me spiritual things and disciple me and help me grow up in the faith, but he he let me into his life. We played basketball together. We played golf together. I, I got to babysit his kids. I got to go over there for meals. I got to see how he operated with his wife and his kids. I saw how he made vocational decisions. I saw how he honored and treated people in interactions with them. He was a great model. Such a good model that 
memories of what he did and when he did it still flood my brain today. A good model. And I wonder today as an application point for parents, you know, Jeff sometimes does a great job up here of pausing and looking at that section over there often because kids often sit over there and talks to the youth. And that's great. I love that he does that because everybody's part of the body here. I'm going to do the opposite. Parents, I'm coming at you or those that will be parents. I run across people at times that live their spiritual life in a way that's about what I described a little bit before. Well, I'm going to I'm going to punch my spiritual card by going to this study or attending this Sunday church service. Or it's something my wife wants me to do, so I'll come along. It's something my husband wants me to do. I'll come along. And yeah, my kids, they need to get some proper upbringing and exposure to religion. So I'll go along. That's not authentic. That's a game. That's a facade. And guess what? Parents, adults, it don't work. Our kids see right through it. If you're not throughout all the portions of life, and I'm not talking about perfection here, but integrating your faith in it all, and your kids are seeing that, and they're seeing the realness, the authenticity, the surrender, and the approach to God that's common to every event, they know you're playing a game. And you're actually doing worse than better. By trying to play this facade game. Don't do it. It will distort their view of what it looks like to walk authentically and real with the God of the universe. Work to integrate your faith. Don't make it a show. Don't make it Sunday morning technique to check a box. So we have a mother, a model, and now a man. A man. And before I talk about that section... I need to show you another video. I was an alcoholic for two years. And it was what I did. And I tried to stop drinking. I tried to stop cussing. I tried to stop having sex with women, all that stuff. I met Jesus Christ, and he took care of that in four weeks. No programs. No, you know. Every day waking up saying a certain you know, creed to yourself. It was the blood of Christ. Jesus changed me from within. And he took care of that. And he took care of the desire. Once Kitna became a Christian, he made sure to surround himself with others who helped encourage his walk with God. The biggest thing for me is I have a, a covenant group of guys. Um, a lot of people, you know, have accountability groups, and we like to call it accountability on steroids. It's four of us, and it, it, it goes beyond getting together, you know, once every two weeks to talk about a Bible study or, you know, hey, well, how you doing? I mean, it's conversations basically every day on the phone. None of us live in the same area. We've got two guys back home in Tacoma, one guy in Cincinnati. I'm all over the place. Now uh, we just uh, added a guy in Arizona, and, and so... It's, it's, it's to the point where we conversate so much and we know each other so well that we know that if a person is kind of withdrawn in a conversation or a little hesitant, that, you know, something's going on. And we'll keep digging and keep digging until we find out what that is. Since the Bengals aren't in the Super Bowl, I had to get at least a former Bengal into our situation here this morning, right? 
John Kidna talks about the start of his life change, but he goes on to talk about this whole idea of being a man to someone else, if I can characterize it as that. This group that he has. Just like the scriptures here are talking about. Paul said, you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. I want to break down these words a little bit because they're important words in the original language. They all mean a little different things in terms of how we stimulate life change, both on the receiving end and in the giving end in other people's lives. The first word is exhort, exhort. And as I was, I was to have a person up here and to demonstrate what it looks like, Exhort is an appeal to the will. It's an appeal to the will. It's as if I would take my arm on this imaginary person here, I'd ply it to the back, and I would say, get in there. Get in there. Make the right choice. Get involved. Make it happen. It's an appeal to the will. The second word there, encourage, that's an appeal to feelings. It's the idea of this imaginary person was here, I would take my arm, not apply it to the back, but I would wrap it around both shoulders and say, hey, it's hard now, isn't it? This is a painful time. You're feeling confused. I'm with you. It's an appeal to the feelings. Paul did that. The third one, implore, is an appeal to the gut or the deepest, innermost part of a person. It's not the push in the back, get in there. It's not the wrap around both shoulders and saying, I feel your pain. It's the pressing on the shoulder into a seat and saying, we got to talk. This is the one that's tough love. This is loving confrontation. This is laying it on the line. This is, you know what the right thing to do is. Why don't you obey? Something that very few of us like to do in relationships, in a culture that says tolerate, tolerate, tolerate. But I'm here to tell you, a person that implored me years ago changed the trajectory of my life. Because what I was doing was this. I was playing the Christian game. I had the fence right here and I had one line over here. And I was Christian guy. Did Christian things. Could mix with those people, say the right stuff. This side of the fence, I was loving the world and taking part in it. And in my mind, I had learned how to play it both ways pretty good and could get along without anybody really knowing the difference. But one guy, he saw it. And he had the courage to come to me in love and say, you're playing a game. I see potential for you in terms of living an abundant life and serving the Lord. But it'll, it'll never happen playing the game. Well, certainly there welled up inside of me a fleshly response that wanted to say, who in the blankety blank are you telling me? I know your problems. Don't come judging me. But fortunately, the grace of God was upon me and a right mindset came to say, he doesn't have to be doing this. He doesn't win any points for doing this, and he's right. Am I going to stay in self-deception, or am I going to receive it as the truth that it is? And fortunately, God allowed it to be received as the truth that it was. And I haven't lived a perfect Christian life since then, but I'll tell you this. I've not played the game ever since then. 
as sincere as I know I've pursued the Lord Jesus Christ as the trajectory and the most important thing to my life. But it wouldn't have happened if he wouldn't have done that. He was a man to me. Finally, satisfaction of life change. It's right here. Try to get your mind around the picture that Paul creates. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You see, he's saying at the end of life, what really is satisfying, what's really meaningful is not a what, it's a who. It's not a 401k plan. It's not a beach house in North Carolina. It's not being able to kick my feet up and watch prices right every day. It's influence on people. He pictures a day before the Lord where he can look right and left and say, I had a small difference there. I had a moment that impacted that person and their being here. I had an encouragement that helped set that person back on course. And that brings me satisfaction. That's my trophy. That's my treasure. I look forward to that day. That's the picture. A commentator said this about what's written there. The writers look forward to the coming of Christ, especially as the time when their service will be reviewed and rewarded by the Lord who commissioned them. And they will be content, they say, to have it assessed by the quality of their spiritually life-changing investment in others. The tire icon Harvey Firestone said it this way, it is only as we develop others that we permanently succeed. The Apostle John said, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Paul wrote in another book about how we as people have the chance to plant and water, but God causes the growth. And my question to you this morning would be, have you clued into the fact that you are not responsible for growing people spiritually. You're not responsible for starting their life change with God. He says he does that. But you are responsible for planting and watering, to use the agricultural analogy. The idea is that every day in every relationship with every person with both intentionality and responsiveness to the moment we have a chance to either plant something or water something toward growing and making a difference in that life. What you want to live for is not a what. It's a who. And the who's that can surround you at that day when you are encountering Christ in his second coming. I'm going to invite up a friend, Chuck Proudfit. Chuck goes to the church here. And he has a story of starting life change and stimulating life change and the satisfaction that comes with it. And I want him to share a little bit. Good morning, everybody. So Ron told me that I have five minutes to cover 25 years of my work life, which means five years every minute, which means we're going to be fast forward this morning. I um, 
graduated from Harvard University in 1987 and took a job in Cincinnati at Procter & Gamble. That's why I'm here. It was that job. It was the workplace that was kind of leading my lifestyle or future lifestyle forward. And I was assigned to a toilet paper brand right out of school, and it's no longer in existence. It was called White Cloud. It's now Charmin Ultra. Not that most of you care about that. However, I started to care about the job that I had about six months into it. You see, I I had this vision of having made it. You know, it was a fast track. It was a prestigious company. It was a training ground. It was all those things. And six months into my job, I was called into my manager's office and given a top secret project that was very high profile that got me promoted and moved me forward in the company, uh, but left me feeling completely empty. Back in those days, the cost of paper pulp was going up really fast. And P&G couldn't take a price increase, at least not directly, because people wanted to pay 99 cents for a four roll. So my project was to take 30 sheets off of each roll of toilet paper, working with the manufacturing plants around the country to do that and to wind the rolls more loosely so they'd be essentially the same size as they'd been before. Now, there's nothing illegal in doing this. It's important to say that to the P&G people in the crowd. Uh, It wasn't illegal. It's like candy bars. You know, they shrunk them down in size and then they introduced the jumbo bar, but you had to pay extra for it. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, And it wasn't unethical. This, in fact, there's a whole field of uh, business school research in what they call indirect price increases. Uh, but I can tell you this, for me, although it wasn't illegal or unethical, it was hollow. It was as hollow as a core in a toilet paper roll. So I lived in Mount Adams. I walked home from downtown from P&G's facility up Columbia Parkway up to my apartment, and I sat out on the deck And I looked out over the Ohio River, which compared to the clear creeks and streams in Colorado where I grew up, was this depressing mass of mud that was just (laughs) moving down. And I thought to myself, that is my career. And that's what getting ahead is going to look like. And that's not going to fulfill me. And it was at that moment that God moved. You see, God used work to trigger my spiritual journey. We as Christians usually think of uh, bringing our spirit-filled life to work if that occurs to us. But for me, it was actually work that triggered a spiritual search. Because that still small voice said to me, Chuck, if you can figure out what it is in your life that gives you fulfillment, that will give you some clues for what fulfilling work looks like. And so here I am all these years later, having walked into a place as a Christian, as a Christ follower, and that took me 10 years studying world religions and philosophies, and now as a believer, asking myself, what does it look like to find an end game that offers fulfillment? To understand that, as you said, Ron, if we can plant and water, God will do something miraculous and grow, and that we can grow spiritually through our work lives. And, and I've been passionate about that, not just for myself, but for others. And God has been faithful in that. You guys may not know this, but born out of this local church is a ministry called At Work On Purpose, which is now the largest citywide marketplace ministry in the country. There are 4,200 members across this city alone. And these are people who are literally bringing their faith to work. And for those of you in this audience today who are working Christians, I encourage you to connect with what we're doing. It's at workonpurpose.org. It's a place where God's moving, and it's a place where fulfillment and the end game is about God's purposes instead of ours. Thanks, Ron. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to take you back to Johnny.
and finish the story. You see, Barbara, the facilitator on that particular day, got a call again about a month later. But it wasn't from Johnny. You see, it was from Johnny's store manager. The store manager called Barbara and said, you won't believe what's happening here. He said, I've got Johnny's line backing up clear through the frozen food aisle in my store on a regular basis. He said, in fact, I got on the PA system just recently and told people we had three new checkout lines open that they could filter over there. And all the people called out and said, no, that's okay. We'd like to stay in Johnny's line. One woman said, you know, I used to come to your store once a week to get my groceries. But now every day I go by, I come in because I want to get Johnny's thought for the day. It impacts my life so much. See, Johnny, he got it. He got it. He's doing more than filling bags with groceries. He's actually starting life change in people's hearts, stimulating them to see the goodness of life, the blessing, the gifts. And he's bringing satisfaction to his own life, but also to other people to see a bigger picture than the -the run-of-the-mill days that they might be going through. And all the more the message to us who have Christ and live in the power of the Holy Spirit to be infecting other people in our day-to-day lives with messages of Christ and his cross and the abundant life that's available through him. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for our morning. Um, We started singing that we're a friend of God. May we uh, really embrace that this morning, to know that you're the type of God that if we've accepted Jesus and put our trust and faith in him, that we have a friendship that pushes away condemnation and wrath and scorn. But it brings on a God that wants us to have a fulfilling, meaningful, joyful, satisfying life that involves making a difference in other people. Would you help us to have an eye out as you lead us for starting life change in other people, for stimulating their growth and their understanding of you? And may we long for the day like Paul described, that we would not shoot for worldly things, things that will not last but we would shoot for people, for the who's that would stand alongside of us one day when your son returns and we'd be able to say, I had a little impact there. I was able to make a difference there. God helped me to say the right thing at the right time there. Bring us to those places, Lord, and I ask it through your son. Amen. Have a great day.